Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Trials for Effect, Douglas MacArthur and the Trial of Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita Following World War II, hundreds if not thousands of Japanese were accused of war crimes. General of the Army Douglas MacArthur's appointment as Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers, or SCAP, on 15 August 1945 made him responsible for the enforcement of Point 10 of the Potsdam Declaration upon defeated Japan. Stern justice shall be meted out to all criminals. As SCAP, MacArthur was responsible for enforcing all the terms of Potsdam. This meant demobilizing the Japanese military and demilitarizing Japanese society. It was a responsibility he attacked with vigor, and pursuing the prosecution of war criminals was no exception. Though he called it his most repugnant duty, MacArthur did not shy away from it. One of the most significant trials was the prosecution of Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita for Japanese atrocities committed in the Philippine Campaign of 1944-1945. He was the first to be tried, and it can be said that all other trials of Japanese in the Pacific depended on his successful conviction. MacArthur sought Yamashita's conviction for psychological as well as legal reasons, and the weight of his hand was heavy on the conduct of the trial. Though General MacArthur had no plans for trials when he accepted responsibility for their conduct, Prosecution of Japanese war criminals was not an alien concept. Promises of war crimes trials had emanated from Allied leaders since the early days of the Second World War. As early as June 1943, MacArthur had been aiding the Australian War Crimes Commission, providing transportation to the Commission for the investigation of atrocities and violations of the laws of war in New Guinea. On 24 October 1944, four days following the Leyte landings, MacArthur even issued his own official proclamation on future accountability of war criminals. The proclamation stated that abuse of prisoners of war under Japanese control was known, and that criminals would be held responsible after the war. The establishment of a war crimes investigation unit in MacArthur's southwest Pacific area made the intentions of post-war prosecution official. Details of the Bataan Death March and other Japanese atrocities were first made known to the United States by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in January 1944. The President promised that Tojo and his gang would be hunted down at war's end. On 25 September 1944, Secretary of War Henry Stimson backed up Roosevelt's statement by establishing the War Department's War Crimes Branch. Its purpose was to investigate atrocities and the violations of the laws of war in all theaters of operation. A subordinate theater branch was set up in Southwest Pacific Area in April 1945. It was supervised by MacArthur's judge advocate, Colonel Alva C. Carpenter. No official record exists within MacArthur's office diary or appointment log of any meetings with Carpenter prior to the end of hostilities in August 1945. How much they knew of each other is vague. MacArthur, however, depended heavily on Carpenter and his SCAP legal section during the conduct of the post-war trials. They provided the foundation for MacArthur's legal reasoning and planning for war crimes trials under United States jurisdiction in the Pacific. 
The 15 August directive appointing MacArthur as SCAP gave no guidance for trials other than what was stated in the Potsdam Declaration. Not until 29 August did the SCAP receive further definition of his role in the trials. The State War Navy Coordinating Committee, or SWINC, policy paper 150-4 was transmitted to MacArthur from Washington while he was en route to his initial landing in Japan at Atsugi. Swink's initial post-surrender policy clearly authorized MacArthur to incarcerate almost anyone who had even thought of militarism. Of course, this is an exaggeration, but it is a fact that a broad net was cast by Swink and the Allies. The Swink paper, however, offered little advice on how to proceed with trials. There was nothing stated on courts or rules of procedure. At MacArthur's first meeting with his legal section, he spoke of the difficult task ahead. He warned they would all face criticism for the mission they were about to initiate. One wonders if they could have known how much. Almost as soon as MacArthur landed in Japan to begin the occupation, he was bombarded with criticism for his treatment of defeated Japan. The Allied press wanted blood, and MacArthur was accused of applying a kid gloves approach to the Japanese. The Australians and the Soviet Union wanted the Emperor removed from power and tried, something MacArthur was not going to let happen, believing the entire occupation would fall apart. The Philippine and British governments wanted General Yamashita for atrocities committed in Manila and Singapore during the war. On 12 September, the United States Joint Chiefs of Staff urged the general to begin trials before military courts or tribunals. He was being pressed, so two days later he issued a press release in an attempt to stem the criticism. He explained that he knew the brutal actions of the enemy in the war spawned impatience for justice, but that security and military expediency required restraint. MacArthur's main concern was a smooth-running occupation, and though the Japanese were entirely cooperative and made the establishment of force in Japan much easier, MacArthur feared anything that might upset the balance, and the rounding up of war criminals didn't start off well. Verbal orders given to Colonel Elliot Thorpe's counterintelligence corps sent them after the most famous of accused war criminals, former Premier Hideki Tojo. Upon arrival of CIC officers, Tojo attempted suicide prompting a media circus. Future arrests loomed as specters, but practicality reigned and SCAP accepted the offered aid of the Japanese government to help deliver all the accused. The government didn't want chaos either. As war criminals were being arrested and the critics were screaming, MacArthur and Carpenter were putting together a plan of action for the trials. MacArthur wanted the trials to have a psychological effect on the Japanese people and would use them as a tool aiding in the reformation of Japan. His belief was that the Japanese had to be shown that their militarist leaders had led them to destruction in the modern world. The trials of military leaders, in conjunction with a massive campaign of war guilt, to publish the facts of the atrocities of imperial Japanese forces, would produce the desired psychological effect upon the Japanese people to embrace the aims of the occupation, to democratize and demilitarize. In mid-September, SCAP informed the Japanese government The documents and accounts of atrocities were to be widely publicized to the populace. Publication of accounts began soon after. All that was needed was a trial to draw everyone's attention closer, a trial in which the villain was known by everyone and the atrocities were too numerous to disregard. There was one trial that fit the need perfectly, and so Lieutenant General Tomoyuki Yamashita became the first accused Japanese war criminal brought to trial for atrocities committed in the Philippines and especially during the Rape of Manila. MacArthur had put together his own plan on how to proceed, but so had the Allies, and their views were vastly different. 
On 22 September, the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued the directive for the identification, apprehension, and trial of persons suspected of war crimes. This directive further refined MacArthur's authority, established by the Potsdam Declaration and Swink's post-surrender policy. It was the first real guide for prosecuting war criminals. War criminals were classified as Class A, B, and C. The directive ordered MacArthur to incarcerate those identified as Class A suspects, but take no action against them. These were Japanese that had led the nation to war and were to be tried by an international tribunal for crimes against peace, similar to the one taking place in Nuremberg, Germany. MacArthur was adamantly against the plan for an international tribunal, or what came to be known as the International Military Tribunal for the Far East. He feared it would be outside his influence and might lead to the implication of Emperor Hirohito as a war criminal. The one thing the general believed above all was that the occupation could only be successful with Hirohito's complicity and influence over the Japanese people. Also, MacArthur wanted to prosecute only Generals Tojo, Yamashita, and Homa for major crimes of war atrocities and do it rapidly. He feared an international tribunal would be a long, drawn-out affair that would negate the desired psychological effect on the Japanese people, and that over time they would sympathize with their former leaders. MacArthur was asked for his views on the 22 September Directive. His response was the charging of Yamashita and issuance of SCAP's regulations governing the trial of war criminals two days later. MacArthur had not waited for precise clarification of guidance for war crimes trials. This was classic Douglas MacArthur. Between the time of his reception of Swink 150-4 in August and the 22 September directive, MacArthur and his legal section decided on their own how to proceed. Time was of the essence, and the more time that elapsed, the less the war guilt campaign would be effective. The general thought he could stave off an international tribunal, but the Amashta trial had to commence immediately. Alva Carpenter claimed that it was he and MacArthur who decided Yamashita would be the first to stand trial, and that the general's words were that the trial was the bellwether. Yamashita's trial was the test. It would establish the rules of procedure that were to be used in the subsequent trials for lesser war crimes throughout the Pacific, and SCAP had changed the rules. The United States Army faced the daunting task of hundreds, if not thousands, of war crimes trials in the fall of 1945. And in many of the cases, the only evidence against the accused was the affidavits filed by former Allied POWs. Affidavits, however, were not admissible into military courts under United States military law. The problem was that most of the POWs throughout the Pacific had been shipped home because the medical facilities they needed were not available in the destroyed Philippines and Japan. Not having the use of their affidavits as evidence meant that many known criminals of irrefutable guilt would go free. The legal section, therefore, had to establish rules of evidence that allowed affidavits. In 1942, the United States tried a handful of German saboteurs before a military commission in New Jersey. President Roosevelt made allowance for any evidence that would have probative value in the mind of a reasonable man. The 1942 case became the precedent to establish the rules of evidence they desired. United States Army Judge Advocate General Major General Myron C. Kramer approved the legal section's reasoning. Thus, MacArthur's comment that the trial was the bellwether. If the rules and procedures established by SCAP for all the trials were going to be proved unlawful, or so their reasoning went, it would happen in the trial of Yamashita, one of the most infamous of accused war criminals at the time. The charge against Yamashita was drawn up by Carpenter and the SCAP legal section, but the influence of MacArthur was heavy. 
There was a lack of evidence to try him for ordering the atrocities against civilians and POWs in the Philippines. Yamashita was on trial for being in command and having made no effort to end the atrocities committed by his forces, or what is known as command responsibility. Was Yamashita being tried for the violation of an ex post facto law? MacArthur didn't think so. He saw command responsibility as existing since the earliest days of the military tradition. Professing his beliefs in the moral code of the soldier, failure to exert command responsibility threatened the very fabric of international society. He wanted the trial conducted quickly, have the desired psychological effect, and then be over with. Yamashita's U.S. Army Defense Council, however, had other ideas. It was apparent from the start of the trial in October that the cards were stacked against Yamashita's defense. The rules of procedure definitely worked to the benefit of the prosecution, as affidavits, hearsay, and unnamed witnesses were permitted as evidence. The charge of failure to exert command responsibility, as opposed to a charge for ordering atrocities, was easier to prove. It implied that it didn't matter if Yamashita knew about the atrocities or not. All that mattered was that he was in command when they occurred. In the course of the trial, MacArthur even pressed the court to hurry in its deliverance of a conviction. The defense team, however, stood its ground, arguing against the right for MacArthur to conduct the trial, the lack of legal background among the general officers serving on the military commission judging the case, the rules of procedure and evidence, and the viability of the charge. When a conviction and sentence of death was passed down on the two coincidental date of 7 December 1945, Yamashita's defense counsel appealed all these aspects of the trial and was granted a hearing by the United States Supreme Court. The prospect of the U.S. Supreme Court interfering in the Yamashita case was not to MacArthur's liking at all. Military commissions were supposed to be autonomous, but if Yamashita's conviction was overturned, then the legal basis for the subsequent Class A, B, and C trials in Tokyo and Yokohama was in doubt. As well, MacArthur's psychological war guilt campaign was well underway in Japan. On the day of Yamashita's conviction and sentencing, a radio and press blitz was launched detailing the faults and actions of the Japanese military. Known as the Now It Can Be Told program, it ran in 20 installments. The sack of Manila was highlighted in one of the segments. MacArthur was trying to show that the Japanese militarists had led the nation astray. Should Yamashita have been found innocent, MacArthur and the Allied perspectives of the war would have looked foolish, and to MacArthur the effects would have been detrimental to a smooth-running occupation. The possibility of the conviction being overturned by the Supreme Court was very real to the scap, as he felt he had no friends on the court. The Supreme Court was made up of justices appointed by Franklin Roosevelt. MacArthur's distrust of Roosevelt and his New Deal associates is not a myth. One justice in particular, Frank Murphy, was well known by MacArthur. He served as High Commissioner of the Philippines during MacArthur's six-year stint as military advisor to the Philippines. Their relationship, to put it mildly, had been antagonistic. Most importantly, MacArthur was well acquainted with Murphy's anti-capital punishment views. The idea of a Supreme Court stocked with Roosevelt's appointees reviewing the case of Yamashita horrified MacArthur. He believed they had no jurisdiction in the case. Some in Washington feared that MacArthur might carry out Yamashita's sentence before the Supreme Court could hear the defense counsel's appeal. The Secretary of War, Robert Patterson, therefore, issued a direct order to keep MacArthur from doing so. Hearing the Yamashita case on 7-8 January 1946, the Supreme Court gave a majority opinion stating they had no jurisdiction in the case. 
The dissenting opinions of Justices Murphy and Wiley Rutledge have been well documented and need not be reviewed again. Despite their dissent, the conviction of Yamashita stood and he was executed in early 1946. The trial of General Yamashita produced many of the effects MacArthur envisioned for the trial. The autonomy and rules of procedure of the military commission established by SCAP were upheld and served as the legal precedent for subsequent war crimes trials in the Far East. Failure to exert command responsibility was upheld as a war crime, and eventually the U.S. and Philippine armies codified the criminality of command responsibility into their military law. Did the Yamashita trial have the psychological effect upon the Japanese that MacArthur intended? The SCAP intelligence chief, Major General Charles A. Willoughby, included analysis of the Japanese press within his daily intelligence summaries he forwarded to MacArthur. Willoughby's assessment of the press was that a feeling of shame was instilled in the populace after the truth of the atrocities became known. He also wrote that the Japanese have probably not been convinced that a commander can be held responsible for the acts of his soldiers. Willoughby further stated that the press revealed that the Japanese were seeking to eradicate from its inner nature the traits which have made these atrocities possible. The Japanese press itself, therefore, revealed that some psychological effect occurred. Whether MacArthur believed that the Yamashita trial had the desired psychological effects is unknown. The general never recorded his thoughts for posterity. He did not, however, allow the publication of Yamashita defense attorney A. Frank Reel's book, The Case of General Yamashita, in Japan. If any beneficial effects from the trial had taken place, he did not want Reel's book to reverse anybody's opinions. Douglas MacArthur's role in the trial of General Yamashita has left him open to criticism. The court, the rules of procedure, and the rules of evidence were created by his authority. He sat in final review. Any criticism of the trial naturally gravitates to MacArthur. Whether the charge of command responsibility was legal or based on ex post facto law is still hotly debated. As well, many critics have wondered how Yamashita could be held to account for failure to exert command responsibility. Yet the emperor could avoid the same charge in the subsequent IMTFE. MacArthur's 12 November 1945 directive to hasten the conviction is enough to reveal that he affected the fairness of the trial. The message implies that Yamashita's guilt was decided upon from the beginning. It is because of MacArthur's hastening of the conviction that critics of the Yamashita trial use the term victor's justice. MacArthur deserved criticism, but he is not alone. The SCAP legal section, the United Supreme Court, and President Harry S. Truman all reviewed the trial. None bothered to raise any objections. Douglas MacArthur had no doubt of Yamashita's guilt and argued that factual realism outweighed arbitrariness of process. In his mind, the atrocities were so widespread throughout the Filipino archipelago, how could Yamashita not have known? Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.